0: Hello, Central Michigan University. Welcome to Headline Central. Uh, my name is Malachi Barrett. With me is Dominic Mistrangelo and Central Michigan University's 14th president, Dr. George Ross. Uh, thank you for being with us, Dr. Ross. How are you doing this morning?
1: Malachi and Dominic, uh, I'm doing great, and I thank you all for having me this morning.
0: Well, uh, Dom and I have some, several things that we'd like to get into, um, but first, for our listeners, for the audience who may not know what your position is, I'd like you to kind of explain uh, what the president of the university does
1: Wow, okay. (laughs) If we have time, right? If you have time, right? That could be a pretty long answer. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, Central Michigan University, uh, for your audience, uh, uh, we're amongst uh, the most significant national universities in this country, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of our 27,000 students and and 1,500 faculty and staff and 220,000 alumni throughout the United States, throughout the world. And uh, we hold leadership positions academically throughout this country. As its president, my primary responsibility uh, is to lead the strategic direction of the university. And uh, that embodies uh, providing direction, management uh, of, uh, again, the, the, the faculty, the staff, uh, the academic programs of the university. Uh, but you do that through a strong team. I have A strong team of vice presidents and deans and associate deans and academic department chairs and faculty members to make that happen.
2: And uh, we're all here for the success of our students. This is exactly why we think it's important to talk to you about, you know, some of the most important issues uh, facing the university and our campus community. Um, You've been interacting with students as president since 2010, and that's going to bring us to our first topic here. Uh, By the time our listeners listen to this podcast, CMU will have just finished the second panel discussion about diversity and inclusion in campus. Uh, How can these discussions be a catalyst for change at CMU, in your opinion?
1: Well, Dom, you're correct. I uh, became president in 2010. Uh, I've been interacting uh, pretty actively with students for the last six years. Uh, I meet monthly uh, with SGA leadership, including the SGA president, RGA leadership. Uh, They actually meet at my home over dinner every month since I've been here. Interact with students uh, within the residential halls, uh, pizza and Pepsi with the presidents. Uh, I do that consistently. I've met with uh, Greek organizations, other RSOs, I have never refused a one-on-one meeting with a student in my office. I was just mentioning earlier, as a student who visited me yesterday, uh, Angie White. I'm going to give her a shout-out. Our uh, <laughs> former volleyball player came to visit me yesterday. She simply made the call, I'd like to talk to the president. I'd make myself accessible to students. Uh, the issue about um, uh, the talk with the president that we started last December, uh, it sort of came about as I got deeper into fall semester and, frankly, looking and hearing what was going on across the country, uh, I was actually traveling uh, on a, a development or fundraising call to Texas. I was sitting in the airport in Atlanta, Georgia, waiting to board my plane for Dallas, and um, it just hit me that day. I talked to students all the time. I talked to faculty. I talked to staff. I talked to alumni. I talked to community members and various, but. I'm hearing all these rumblings on other campuses across the country and in our state and here in Michigan. So, I, actually, I called Chuck Mahone that day. I called Dr. Dunn in Diversity from the airport that day and said, "What are you all hearing that I haven't heard?" I said to Chuck, "said Chuck, I see you all the time. What are you hearing that I haven't heard?" And frankly, I got some mixed messages from them. Well, it's we're hearing something. We're not sure what it is. So, at that point, I said, "Let's let's talk," and the conversation needs to be with the campus. So. We started that in December. I know there'll be a second um, discussion like that coming up this week. Uh, Hopefully it will lead to opening up communications. Uh, I think the toughest part about talking about diversity and inclusion is being able to talk about it because it's tough. Uh, There are different perceptions. Uh, People have different frames because they come from a different environment uh, and they have had different life experiences. Uh, I don't believe there's enough knowledge of the history, particularly when it comes to race uh, in this country amongst younger people, regardless of what race they are. Uh, So unless we talk, unless we communicate and put those tough issues out there, we won't make it better. So hopefully these conversations will lead to solutions, which is the ultimate goal.
2: Right. Recently, the university approved a $75,000 increase to the institutional diversity programming budget. Was this a direct result of any of the student concern at the previous walking together discussion?
1: Dom, I know you're going to ask me specific budget questions. We have a $483 million budget. I'm not exaggerating when I say we have thousands and thousands of budget lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, I was not personally involved in that increase. I'll have to check on that. But to answer your question, sure answer, it wasn't directly out of my office related to that. So let's talk about our budget a little bit. It's very diversified. Uh, the, the budgets that I typically have, have more knowledge of is the president's office budget. But amongst the provosts, the vice presidents, the deans, the department chairs, they're making budget decisions within their spending authority. For instance, each of the vice presidents at CMU can spend up to half a million dollars uh, uh by board policy uh, our deans can spend up to up to a quarter million dollars department chairs 100,000 so if somebody made a $75,000 budget adjustment i i'm not i don't know about that but it wasn't out of the president's office, or as a result of the, the conversations we're having, but I'm going to look that up when we get back, and because uh, you piqued my interest. Yeah.
0: Well, we're, what we're looking for is, you know, we've talked about how these discussions are good, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we bring up these issues, but you know, how do you take that the next step and create tangible change out of what comes from those discussions?
1: I think we have to identify. Um, I'll just use the term the issues. And when I say that, Malachi, it's um, we have a number of services on this campus uh, related to diversity and inclusion. Um, uh, We have staffed it uh, through our Office of uh, Diversity Inclusion, Diversity Education, Uh, uh, their staff members for uh, LBGTQ community, uh, we need to understand better what needs we are or are not fulfilling on the campus. Uh, we're far ahead of many campuses across this country uh, with, uh, with our diversity officer, Office of Institutional um, Equity, uh, but we need to understand what we need to do better. Uh, I engaged in an outside, frankly, third-party group that has looked at other campuses across the country, the Barthwell Group. To come to our campus to help me, the leadership and the faculty, the leadership and the administration, understand what we need to do better. Uh, what I found on other issues on our campuses and others, there are lots of people wanting to do the right thing. I don't think we're any different. But let's figure out where we're we successful, and frankly, figure out where we need to improve. Let's figure out how we can um, best utilize the resources we're currently spending. And if there's a need for additional resources, I am very open to that. But let's figure out what we're doing. And right now, we I, I need some better clarity on that.
2: You mentioned some of the national debate on the, on college campuses and discussions about diversity. For example, protests at the University of Missouri started some of that national debate about the responsibility of schools specifically to create, let's call them safe spaces on campus for people who feel marginalized. We uh, recently wrote an editorial on this. You can check that out at CM-Life under the Opinion tab. Um, how do you feel about that concept of safe spaces on the campus of public universities?
1: I, uh, I, I can't speak to the University of Missouri. I mean... Uh um, it's, it's it's not the, our culture here at Central Michigan University. Uh, I believe one of the things that came out of that is they ended up hiring or appointing a, a diversity officer at a senior level. We've had that on our campus for 20 years. So uh, I, if students or faculty, staff, visitors feel threatened in any way and in a safe space, however we might define it here at CMU, I'd be very supportive. Uh, but I I... You know, I, I watch CNN and when I can and listen to it on the radio, and it's my primary news source when I'm not reading the Washington Post or the, or, uh, the New York Times or the Wall Street. Uh, so the cultures are different, and I really think it's key to understand if you're in 2015 appointing a chief diversity officer at a major institution, which Missouri is, they probably have a little more catching up to do. And uh, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that without knowing their campus. I'm sure they're well-intentioned. Doesn't m- make it that we're doing everything right here. I don't believe that. But I also believe that we have some uh, structure in place that we can probably leverage and improve upon. And if Safe Spaces comes out of that discussion to action, i will be very supportive.
2: One of the things that um, one group of students has been talking about recently is a gender equity center on campus. Mm -hmm. There's a petition going around uh, for people who want to support that. Do do you support that idea?
1: I support the idea that we provide appropriate services. Um, um, uh, You know, our reality is a majority of our enrollment is female on this campus. We provide a number of services through our diversity and inclusion center, um, uh, through our counseling center, through the office of institutional equity, again, Uh, I support the idea of providing the appropriate services for our student population. Let's understand how effectively we're employing our current dollars uh, to to meet those needs. So I support uh, a deep dive and investigation of what we're doing on our campus, how we're spending those resources. If at the end of the day, uh, we determine that uh, we've got to do it differently and organize it differently, or even spend it differently, I'm wide open to that, yes.
2: Right, and that was one of the Propositions from student government. I'd like to examine that right now. They're in the process of uh, selecting a new president currently. Um, Can you just comment on student government and the value of it? I mean, there's a lot of opinions on this campus, but that student government president is always elected to represent the students. Um, In your opinion, what's the value of having official student representation from an administrative level?
1: I think it's critically important. That's been my major conduit, my starting point anyway, with students since I became president. I uh, uh, I became president March 1, 2010, when, when Jason Nickel was ending his term here. And, and uh, then came Brittany Mukarakison and, and every SGA president since then. We, we started these monthly meetings uh, for the contact. And with these monthly meetings, just to just explain that a little bit, uh, you know, we have a nice meal, and, and we get to have a little fun. But, you know, with that, the SGA presidents have brought to my home at, our din- at my dining table uh, student leaders from across this country. It's not the same group of students every time. The only constant is the president. We've got student senators, students from other RSOs, from Greek organizations. But I think it's, for me anyway, my way of getting a pulse on the campus. But I don't just limit it to talking to, to student government. I'm quite aware of the numbers uh, on the election. And when you had 10 or 12 percent of your student population voting— in the SGA election. I wish it were higher. I'm disappointed by that. But this is the official represent, representative body of the students. Uh, that's why I reach out to students in the residential halls and to the RSOs and to the Greek organizations and uh, and students in general. Uh, there are some prayer groups on campus that have reached out to me. Because uh, you share a common faith, I've reached out to them and responded to them. So it's the pulse of the campus. I do the same thing with faculty members and very regular meetings with them. And I'm not It's beyond deans or department chairs. These are... Uh, what I'll call regular faculty members in the department. I know many of them personally, but it's a way for me as president to get a pulse of what's going on in the campus. You don't always get that sitting in 106 Warner Hall. That's why I kind of limped over here today on my one-and-a-half legs to have this interview We with appreciate guys. it. Okay.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, one of the concerns that former SGA president Chuck Mahone and others uh, have, has raised recently um, is CMU's the word they use is transparency on decisions that affect students, the closure of the Faust Pharmacy and movement of General Friday and, uh, and General... Thursday. He believes that students should have been consulted on, on those issues. Um, what role does student opinion play in CMU's official decision making process?
1: Uh, frankly, I think it depends on the decision. Uh, we seek input uh, depending on the nature of the decision. On General Thursday and Friday, uh, that was a calendar decision that was determined in the Academic Senate, in which sits six to eight students as, student sen- as, as senators, not student senators, two years ago. So I, I think part of that is us doing a better job of communicating and educating process. Um, I was charged of shared governance and communications committee on this campus, which is critical to governance on campus, which has student membership. i have charged a budget priorities committee on this campus, which has student membership. Uh, the university uh, advisory council, which I meet with regularly, has student membership. Uh, we're always seeking student membership, trying to be transparent. But it honestly depends on the nature of the decision. There are some decisions that are compliance-related, that the circle of decision-makers is smaller. There are broader decisions that may or may not affect this campus uh, that we seek input. But we're always seeking input uh, um, from all our major constituent groups, and the the student body is the major constituent group on this campus for me. One of the
0: biggest student concerns and one that I think you and I probably talked about more than anything else is uh, access and affordability. So on the subject of affordability, according to the Institute of College Access and Success, the average Michigan student graduated in 2014 with about $33,000 in debt. Um, And I know that compared to our peers, we're in the bottom half in terms of raising tuition each year, Um, and we've spoken about that before. But is CMU doing everything it can to keep the cost of tuition down?
1: Uh, Malachi, we, uh, each year, and matter of fact, as we do this interview now, Within the next couple, three weeks, we're going to have a board meeting, or April board meeting. We're going to decide tuition and and Reuben board fees for this coming year. And each year, we, we, we evaluate where we are, uh, what the needs are of the university as a whole, in uh, making determination on, on uh, what tuition should be. Uh, I would agree with you that tuition's in the state of Michigan compared to the rest of the country. Uh, we're part of that unfortunately, top 10 states in the country with the highest tuition. Uh, What I've said to students, I'll say, and I've said this to you before, there's an inverse relationship between what we charge for tuition, whether it be at Central Michigan University or Michigan State University or Lake Superior State University, uh, and what we receive from our state legislature and governors for our support. Uh, when you take a billion dollars out of state funding for higher education, which has happened mm-hmm. in the last 15 years, it puts the whole state of Michigan. So you can look at Central and our 14 sister institutions. Yeah, we're out of line with the rest of the country. I wish there were more discussion about what we need to do in Lansing to reinvest in higher education, uh, which is, should be a public education to you and Dom and other students on this campus. Um, uh, I want to correct you. We're not in the bottom half of tuition increases in the state of Michigan over the last uh, six or seven years. We're at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, we look across the 15 institutions. Central Michigan sits at the bottom as far as percent of increase in tuition since I've been president. Uh, we're proud of that, but it's still hard on our student population. Uh, I invite students and faculty and staff to come with me to Lansing all the time. And it's not just me as president of our sister institutions. If we're going to be a state university, we need to reinvest in in higher education in the state. As far as cost containment, we continue. Uh, Each and every year, uh, we talk about energy conservation, which we do, and purchase consortiums, which we do cost avoidance in the terms of millions of dollars each year in order to be at the very bottom of the list as far as tuition increases. Um, We're very aware. It's one of those things uh, uh, that's in my top three. Uh, when I look at our university and, and challenges that we have, I will say, which is quite true, you look at this number, if I know this number, uh, student aid on this campus since I've been president has been increased by 67%. I will share with you, since I've been president, the largest financial commitment under my presidency was a $24 million commitment and an additional student aid that we started two years ago. So uh, I'm proud of that. Is it enough? No, we need to do better, but we need some help. Uh, from our legislature and from our governor uh, and future governors and legislatures, uh, we need to put that billion dollars back as a start. And I'm not exaggerating the number. I invite you to look it up. It's been documented not only by the universities but by the business leaders of Michigan. So uh, uh, come help me in Lansing.
0: <laughs> well, there used to be a time where uh, state appropriations comprised about 70% of 75% our 75%.
1: Right now it's 17%. Right. So if you take state appropriations we take that money we get from the state of Michigan, we could operate CMU for about 55 days. And the rest of it is on the back of students and their families through tuition and fees. Um, uh, And again, if we we go back as little as 20 years, three quarters of our funding came from the state and our tuition rates reflected that. If we got back to funding that we were at at that point, I'd drop tuition tomorrow and this board would support it because because we would,
0: mm-hmm. so. I think uh, Barry Wilkes has said that if tuition, or I'm sorry, if state appropriations were what they were in the early 2000s, tuition would drop by about $100 per credit hour.
1: Yeah, if we go back to 2000, if we adjusted just based on household inflation. Right, it'd be a hundred, a little over hundred dollars credit hour. That's correct. Yes.
0: Okay. Uh, is tuition going to increase again this year?
1: Uh, we're going to be meeting with the board of trustees uh, on April the 29th. I invite you and the general public to attend those meetings. I know on the agenda will be the subject of uh, tuition for the fall of 2017.
0: Um, on the subject of access, so the Online Academic Program Committee was established by the board to find out how our online academic programs compare with our competitors. And I'd like to talk about some of the findings that were released in their first report. I think that was back in October, in the fall.
1: Uh, they released it. Uh, we reported it to the board in, at the December board meeting December okay. 2015, I think. Um, yeah, that's when we posted it to the public, and it's online for review.
0: Yeah, you can go find that. Uh, if you just Google online academic program committee, it's, it's one of the top few for Central Michigan University. Uh, one of their findings, since 2007, enrollment in global campus courses by off-campus students and graduate students has decreased, while enrollment in on-campus and undergraduate students has risen pretty highly. Um, how is global campus adapting their course offerings to meet this change?
1: Well, Malachi, the purpose of the committee and the direction of the board was to uh, um, examine where we are with Global Campus. CMU's Global Campus uh, was started 40, almost 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were one of the early adopters for distance education in America. Uh, we continue to be a leader in distance education. Um, uh, CMU is a little different than most uh Universities or colleges that offer distance education, in that we do a lot of face to face outside of Michigan. Uh, we're operating 44 locations outside of Mount Pleasant, and uh, approximately 40 of those are outside of the state of Michigan. Uh, we teach in Honolulu, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, we teach in um, uh, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Atlanta, Georgia, and Hamilton, New York, and uh, Montreal, Quebec. And as you quote those statistics, they're right. Our our face-to-face students in our classrooms and our global campus have declined. Our online has increased tremendously, not only for off-campus students, but we're finding on-campus students here in Mount Pleasant, Mm -hmm. uh, like you and Dom, are taking more online courses. So the landscape is shifting. And part of the charge of the committee was to to examine the environment for distance learning, uh, CMU's role in that. Uh, where we stand now and where we need to start looking at opportunities to improve, number one, the quality of the distance education that we offer to our students. And our students include the students here in Mount Pleasant, but a quarter of our enrollment are students who are in what we now call global campus, who are not in Mount Pleasant. So it's just a total one CMU student body. So the purpose of the committee was to examine where we are, but look for opportunities to improve Uh, quality of offerings, and frankly, the type of offerings, and how we deliver, Uh, whether it's online, whether it's hybrid, whether it's face-to-face. And that started the study. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to report at this April board meeting I mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Uh, Pearson and uh, Dr. Patton will report to the board of trustees, because this study has now led to work groups. We've had the conversation, which will continue. The work groups will now start looking at how to implement those eight major recommendations and you'll hear about that at the board meeting uh, work groups i met with dr pearson dr Patton yesterday actually uh, they've shared with me the work groups and the charge and the very specifics in that report that you refer to now how do we get there and they're going to be working on that starting now starting at the end of this month they're working through the summer uh, and we hope to see things implemented this fall Okay, wow, that's
0: fairly fascinating because at the last board meeting, you would stress some expediency. You,
1: you know, Malachi, and I'll say it to your audience, I, I, I said I, I said a phrase years ago, and I've been told it may be my original phrase. I call it university speed. We're well-intentioned, but sometimes we move a little slow, uh, and it's kind of aggressive, but I think we need to be for the benefit of our students, and I'm very pleased with, uh, and these committees are are uh, heavily faculty-driven. I'm pleased with that. We'll have faculty input. These are the individuals who will be designing and teaching courses and making it part of the curriculum, and they're heavily involved. So it, it is very aggressive, but I think it's very appropriate that we take the discussion into action, and you'll start seeing action this fall.
0: One of the recommendations that really caught my eye, um, there was a whole section about education for, uh, for university faculty in, in using uh, what tools are available through local campus and for students. And one of the things they recommended was developing a uh, technology training center for faculty members. And the budget for that was estimated to be around $600,000. What's your idea, or What are your thoughts, I guess, on the concept of having that center and the cost for it?
1: Uh, I, I, I don't know about the cost, Malachi. What I do know is that on campus in Mount Pleasant. Uh, we have a Center for Education, and, Te- and Te- Education Teaching, and Learning called CEDL. Uh, we had a similar center in Global Campus, CID. Now, with this combining integration of services between Global Campus and Main Campus, we've got these two arms, who basically teach faculty how to design curriculum and courses and, and delivery. Uh, they now are coming together. Uh, They're both housed in the library. Uh, I don't know where the budget will settle, but there are budgets for both of those units. What I'm really excited about, we have expertise within those two units on our campus. We've had it for years. And I'll tell this audience honestly, I don't know that we've been very effective about talking to each other. Uh, So this integration of services between global campus and main campus, you know, ideally, I'd like to, to talk more about the one CMU, Uh, so they're coming together and the main thrust of one of these subgroups I talked to Dr. Dr. Pearson and Dr. Patton about yesterday was educating and training faculty. There are a number of faculty on campus currently teaching online and hybrid courses. They're pretty darn good at it. There are others who want to, who want to learn, and uh, that's going to be made available to them in relatively short term. You'll see more of that as early as this fall in a very formalized manner, Mm -hmm. uh, reaching out to faculty, making that services available to them. Um, what I'm told for the things that we have done, night, we're pretty good at it, and uh, we'll get better at it as we get these two units working together. Talking about that
0: one CMU idea, um, instructional costs for courses delivered through Global Canvas are usually charged to the academic part, department that offers that course, and under the current development model, it, it takes about $9,000 to start up a new three-credit uh, course online. Who receives the tuition dollars from that program? Does that go to Global Campus, or does that go to the, to the department that paid to start the program?
1: So now one of the challenges about having one CMU and this this thing called Global Campus and Main Campus, uh, what we now call Global Campus has an operating budget, which is uh, uh, instructional costs, it's uh, marketing costs, it's something as basic at least costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when. We're teaching courses in Columbus, Ohio. We don't get to do that free. We have a lease. Um, so those all those costs are in, in our base budget for what we now call global campus. All the other gross margin revenues, and it's going to sound very technical, and Sherry Knight, who's sitting to my right here, going, <laughs> don't say that to this radio audience. They don't get that way. Um, they, made they, <laughs> they made it this Not long. They made it this long. Okay. really. <laughs> uh, actually, flow back to the departments. That's one of the things as we talk about communicating uh uh, the budget for global Campus, what we now call global Campus to handle the operation, but all the other re- revenues beyond that budget flow back into the academic departments, into the into the, uh, into the colleges. That's where it goes.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the other findings is that they identified, in addition to our 15 peer un- institutions that we do reporting on, they mm-hmm. found seven online competitor institutions, and they said that we're falling behind in online program delivery. Um, and I'm just wondering, is that a cost problem of getting more courses online, or what is the issue that's holding back some of these courses being offered?
1: You know, this initial report, and uh, we, we our, our peer institutions, we determine based on, uh, there are a number of uh, attributes we look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we look at total enrollment. So if we're gonna look at a peer, they should sort of should have a similar enrollment in, in number of faculty, number of academic programs, size of budget. Uh, number of degrees offered. So if it kind of looked like us, okay, let's kind of compare ourselves and see how we're doing. When it comes to online programming, uh, the, the population is very small. If you look across our peers, it's practically nonexistent compared to a CMU. So the committee made the decision, well, it's it's out there, but look who we're competing against. So now we're looking at competitors. Now, there's some proprietary institutions. so I'm not going to call them names. I'm going to give them free publicity out there. Uh, there are some state institutions there. If you look in, I'll just if you look in state in Arizona, you might find one. Sure. If you look in state of Maryland, you might find one. So they looked at what we call competitor institutions, and what the data shows is that yes, when you look at undergraduate online programs, and we're competing head, head, head to head against these schools in Arizona and Maryland, uh, we're behind. If you look at masters programs at the masters level online, we're behind. Frank, if you look at doctoral programs, we're ahead. Yeah. So uh, I think only thing that tells us is it's a competitive environment. that's part of this, also, uh, we need to take a look at what we're offering, quality first. Ne- excuse me, need, quality, and then we'll look at the competition and, and our strengths. And uh, as we talked earlier about faculty being trained, uh, there are academic areas we're particularly strong in on this campus. Uh, they're already online, and do you do you increase those? But the faculty will. Help us guide those decisions. It's not just quantity for sake of quantity. Quality trumps quantity all the time. But the faculty will help guide those decisions, and the students also. We mentioned we we're talking about students earlier. We've reached out to students on this campus uh, about online as part of this, and and the students are involved going forward. Uh, what do you all want? I mean, uh, I've talked to students on this campus who are taking online because, frankly, they've got work obligations and uh, it's more convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh anecdotally, uh, that's part of what we believe, why there's much, such an increase of the number of students on campus and Mount of place in taking online courses. Uh, so we've got to find a way to reconcile that. For me, Malachi, online has as much to do with access as anything else. And if we can put the education or make it available to you all as students, whether you're sitting in uh, here in Moore Hall or in Anspa or Pierce or... Uh, you're sitting in a new biosciences building next January, or you're sitting in your apartment, or you're on a summer job in, in Virginia, What Dom's going to be, uh, and you need to take a course, I think it's a lot more convenient for you to take that course while working at Roanoke as opposed to coming back to Mount Pleasant and sitting in a classroom. Mm-hmm. So,
0: And that's great that some of these changes from the work groups are going to be made in the fall. Um, and I understand that this committee was created to kind of Uh, shape, I guess, the vision for the future of of Global Campus. Do we know what that's going to look like?
1: I think uh, I've used a term, what we now call Global Campus, several times. Um, Would there be a name change? It's possible. But it's much more than that. How we operate as a university. The biggest change I'd like to see is that we operate as one university. And uh, I'd like to have an interview with Um, your successor, you'll be graduated going out. And once you decide where you're going to work, because you're going to have opportunities uh, all over this country. uh, But I had to be sitting here in a couple of years with the editor-in-chief of CM Life and say, it's Central Michigan University, period.
0: Well, and you've always said, too, the diploma always says Central Michigan University. And it
1: does. We don't have a separate diploma that says Central Michigan University slash global campus. It's Central Michigan University. So when we were diplomas to those graduates who may have taken courses in Atlanta, Georgia, or may have taken courses in, in, um, uh, in North Carolina or New York. It's Central Michigan University, just as you all who've taken courses here on campus in Mount, in, in Mount Pleasant.
0: I'd like to change tracks, and I just have one last question for you. Uh, CMU's chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists conducted a Freedom of Information Act audit of universities. CMU ranked uh, toward the middle in terms of costs of requests Um, But I'm wondering, would you consider making FOIA requests uh, free for students who want uh, public information about their university?
1: Malcolm, I hadn't thought about that. And and, and let me talk about FOIA requests. Uh, uh, Fortunate or unfortunate, we we get them. Um, Some can be very, very Mm -hmm. time-consuming. We didn't write the FOIA request laws. We just simply interpret and we adhere to them. The reality is, depending on the nature of the request and how we compile data, there are time and hours involved in doing that. Um, I think it's appropriate if we're gonna have to spend an inordinate amount of time and energy to do it, that there'd be a charge for it. Uh, My concern would be that if somehow CMU says everything is free, that I'm now staffing up to answer for all requests, and the criticism from you and your uh, schoolmates on this campus is, why are you had all those administrators? Well, those 4 requests used to be X. Now they're all free, and they're going to be X plus X. So I, I, we're going to obey current statute on four-year requests. Um, we've gotten four requests. Some are easy to do. The study you're referring to, there there was a request on uh, expenditures by our board of trustees. The way the data is currently compiled, it was pretty easy to do because it had been kind of already documented. That way we could just hand it over frankly, there are other requests where we've got staff people digging through old records and old files. Uh, we get requests in that are vague and not specific. We do follow-up, and mm-hmm. uh, we have to um, uh, figure out how we're going to have staff time to do that. And the FOIA law is set up that way be, because uh, there's nothing that's free. Yeah. And uh, that's the reality. So uh, I, so depending on those requests, something come out very quickly, and other things just take a lot of a lot of time to put together.
0: I think, we, I think everyone pretty much agrees on the subject that if there's uh, significant time being dedicated toward you know, getting these documents together, there should be some kind of charge. You're, you're paying for the man hours, essentially.
1: Let me suggest to you, and this is for uh, the group that you just mentioned, anyone else, uh, and we talked about transparency early related to students. Mm-hmm. Uh, our budgets have been online since I was a VP here back in 2002. You can go look. Yep. There's nothing related to our budget you can't look at salary schedules are online, expenditure budgets are online, capital budgets are online. Now, it takes a little work. So for the FOIA requests, at least the ones who float up to my desk, and the way it works, if it comes to me, it goes to our general counsel's office, and they're expert in this, and they decide how we, how and what we respond to. But frankly, some of the things we're asked to do now, it, it takes a little work to get to it. Just go to our website. It's there. Uh, as opposed to having a staff person... Frankly, go to our website and go to other documents pulling it together. But if you really want to know, you can know. We're a public university. Our expenditures are an open book, uh, Be the, and it's it's available to you. you got to dig a little bit. It's not free. From that standpoint, you got to put a little uh, labor into it. But it's there.
0: For some of these things, you said the, the board of trustees' um, expenses was easy to put together because those documents, it sounds like, are compiled more efficiently or they're in you know, a well, location that are easy to I grab. don't want to use
1: the word efficient. They're just... Based on the request received on that, the way we normally compile them, it just fit. It was just yeah. right there. Uh,
0: I'm wondering if, uh, if when you get these FOIA requests, and maybe after the results of this audit, mm-hmm. that makes anyone take a look at the way documents are uh, compiled and, I guess, filed, so that when these things happen, they're, they're accessible and it's easy to get instead of... I, I, I think that would help with transparency as well.
1: Um, I, I don't know. It's, uh, we've got... If I quote this number, I'm probably going to get it wrong. Let's—I can say honestly—we have thousands and thousands of budget lines within our budget, many thousands. Yeah. Uh, people authorized to spend money on the campus is several hundred. So take that multiplication across the thousands, actually tens of thousands of transactions that happen every month. So when we get to the end of the year, when I say million multi million transactions across various accounts, I'm not exaggerating. The system is designed to be as efficient and as effective as possible in order for our staff members and decision makers to get our work done, uh, be accountable for the dollars that we spend. We're audited every year uh, by independent auditors, by the federal government, by the state government, by other funding agencies. So it's really designed to be efficient in being able to do that. Uh, I don't think we've talked through about, well, how do you design it if somebody asks this question? Because you never know what a four-year request might entail. Uh, I think that will be challenging. Are we, again, are we open to the discussion? Is there, uh, and I don't know this, is there a pattern or the type of request that we're getting that maybe there's something we could tweak the system says we can expect this request? Um, if, if we can expect a request on Board of trustee expenditures every year, should we tweak the system and just produce it? Uh, I would probably argue uh, I don't think we need to produce anything we don't need to produce because it's going to be more staff time, and we're stretched pretty thin on staff right now. So, um, again, we'll bait it for you, loss, and we'll respond appropriately, and if it's going to take an inordinate amount of time, we're going we're to charge for it.
0: All right. Well, I believe that's all the time that we have. Dr. Ross, thank you very much for meeting us. We really appreciate your time this morning.
2: Malachi, I appreciate it. Dom, I appreciate it. And we would also like to thank our listeners and more media records for providing the space for this podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, For our listeners, we'll be back with a new episode of Headline Central later this week. But until then, this is Dominic Mistrandolo.
0: And I'm Malachi Barrett, and we are signing off.
1: Thank
2: you.